And we are live. We are live, everybody. <laughs> Welcome back to Two Bros Bible Study, where you will. You will be learning about the Bible with us while we learn it too. Coming back at you with Genesis 41. That's right. Genesis 41. So, Justin, would you like to kick us off? I do. Now, it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream. And behold, he was standing by the Nile. And behold, from the Nile, seven cows came up, fine-looking and fat, and they grazed in the marsh grass. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them from the Nile, ugly and thin, and they stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. Then the ugly and thin cows ate the seven fine-looking and fat cows. Then Pharaoh awoke, but he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain came up on a single stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven ears, thin and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. Then Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Now in the morning his spirit was troubled. So he sent messengers and called for all the soothsayers, priests of Egypt, and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. All right. Getting right started with verse 1. Uh, we learn here that it had been two full years since the cupbearer ultimately left the jail. And so Joseph's been sitting in this jail for two years. Okay. The cupbearer forgot him. Two years is a long time. That's a lot of patience to have. I can imagine Joseph, right, is seeing God work in his life. He's like, what in the world? Like, it's been two full years. Like, I don't know. I suspect he, Joseph, I don't know what, what was going through Joseph's mind, but it probably was like, Hey, I'm hoping to get out of here sooner rather than later. It's a long time. Pharaoh ultimately has two dreams back to back. He has a dream, then he wakes up, then he has another dream. And these dreams are specifically around the number seven. And um, I'll let Justin talk a little bit more about that. But what I specifically want to talk about is kind of in verse eight. After Pharaoh has these dreams, Pharaoh ultimately seeks the interpretation of these dreams from the soothsayer priest of the land. And so at this time, there were people whose jobs were divination and kind of, I would say maybe the dark arts, you know, bad uh, things that they ultimately shouldn't be doing. And none of these people were able to ultimately interpret these dreams. I'll let Justin talk more about the dreams though. Awesome. So uh, as we see uh, in those days, uh, so it was a common belief that dreams were seen as like an ancient or as a, uh, a message from, from the gods, obviously false gods. And so uh, Pharaoh's two dreams caused him stress and his stress was elevated when his wise men could not interpret the dreams. Now, the Nile River was a staple for Egypt, and it was relevant to the economy of the kingdom, uh, which, we, which appeared in Pharaoh's dream. And so in the first dream, we have the seven scrawny, scrawny and ugly cows that ate the seven healthy cows. Then in the second dream, it was the same message, except the seven ears of corn instead of cows. The, the east wind uh, might represent the, the, the scorching desert wind. Uh, which obviously would damage crops. And so uh, the soothsayers that are listed here, uh, as Henry had remarked to as well, um, probably practiced witchcraft, uh, probably interacted with demons. Um, but as we know, demons don't know the future. Only God does. And so this seems to be somewhat of a common occurrence for ancient kings to employ sorcerers or uh, practicers of witchcraft, because we see that later... Another Pharaoh, the one in Moses' day, did the same thing. And we also see that, that Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel uh, did this as well. 
I would just add one more thing about the dreams. Um, I suspect Pharaoh found these dreams particularly unusual because of the the fact that there was back-to-back dreams and they both were had a very similar theme. If we go back to the dreams that the cupbearer and the baker ultimately had, they both had dreams that were similar in theme. And so I think that increased the curiosity of wanting an interpretation from those dreams. Moving on to verse nine, then the chief cupbearer spoke to Pharaoh saying, I would make mention today of my own offenses. Pharaoh was furious with his servants and he put me in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, both me and the chief baker. Then we had a dream one night, he and I. Each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now our Hebrew youth was there with us, a servant of the captain of the bodyguard. And we told him the dreams and he interpreted our dreams for us. For each man he interpreted according to his own dream. And just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. Pharaoh restored me in my office, but he hanged the chief baker. Yes, so here we see the the cupbearer when he first starts talking about this with Pharaoh. He said, make mention of my offenses um, because he was trying to take the fault for Pharaoh putting him in, in prison, right? He wasn't trying to say like, hey, remember that time that you messed up and put me in prison? He's trying to say, hey, is, remember when I messed up and you put me in prison and so he he brought this up to to talk about joseph so um if i was joseph i would feel really frustrated with the cupbearer um for not for forgetting him for two years but at least now he he finally remembered joseph and, and how he was able to interpret his dream um along with the baker and so uh with this kind of this event triggers uh, the cupbearer's memory, and so he tells Pharaoh uh, about uh, Joseph and, and his ability to interpret dreams. Right. Yeah, I imagine um, bringing up right. If you if if you were previously thrown in jail and the other guy got killed, uh, and you made an offense, just like the cupbearer is saying here. That's probably not something you want to bring up regular, regular. Hey, remember that huge time I screwed up? Let me maybe incite some anger again, right? That you had previously such that you might in a whim, right? Behead me. So I would say the cupbearer does seem to be going out on a limb here, but he is, he is doing this ultimately to help Pharaoh and potentially look good in front of him as well. I would also just point out here as well, the cupbearer gives credit to Joseph here, the cupbearer does not give credit to the interpretation of these dreams to God. And Joseph specifically gave the credit to those interpretations that he did for cupbearer and the baker to God. If you don't mind, I would like to pull that up really quickly. In verse eight, the second half of verse eight, then Joseph said to them, do interpretations not belong to God? Tell it to me, please. So he's referencing God in regards to these interpretations, not ultimately himself. Verse 14. Okay. Then Pharaoh sent word and called for Joseph, and they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream but no one can interpret it. And I have heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph then answered Pharaoh saying, it has nothing to do with me. God will give Pharaoh an answer for his own good. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, in my dream, there I was standing on the bank of the Nile and behold, seven cows, fat and fine looking, came up out of the Nile and they grazed in the marsh grass. Then behold, Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen for ugliness in all the land of Egypt. And the thin and ugly cows 
ate the first seven fat cows. Yet, when they had devoured them, it could not be detected that they had devoured them, for they were just as ugly as before. Then I awoke. I was also in my dream, and behold, seven ears of grain, full and good, came up on a single stalk, and behold, seven ears withered, thin and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up after them. And the thin ears swallowed the seven good ears. Then I told it to the soothsayer priest, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Yeah, so Pharaoh, he's excited about the cupbearer's recommendation to go get Joseph. They take Joseph out of the jail here and they clean Joseph up. I suspect Joseph wasn't looking super clean, super sharp. And they cleaned him up, changed his clothes, shaved him. And so I suspect he looks a lot different now, right? Having a, sha having a shaved face. And that, that's important because that, that will ultimately come up later on in the book. But um, and then Pharaoh goes on to uh, uh, tell Joseph that he has a dream. And I think Joseph does, again, the appropriate thing. Verse 16, Joseph then answered Pharaoh saying, it has nothing to do with me. God will give Pharaoh an answer for his own good. So Joseph again is giving the credit to God. In fact, I think he even goes a step further. He says it has nothing to do with them. That's a pretty humble dude right there. Mad respect for somebody who recognizes that their spiritual gifts are ultimately from God and not for themselves. And then, of course, Pharaoh goes on to bring up the dreams again, and he basically uh, retells those dreams to Joseph. So we see that, as Henry referenced, Joseph was cleaned up, and he was changed into uh, what would have been proper Egyptian appearance um, before, he would have, before he was brought in to see Pharaoh. And so uh, also, as Henry referenced, that Joseph gave God the credit for interpreting dreams. And so we see here a, a contradiction of worldviews, because uh, based on the um, historical times, Pharaoh probably saw interpreting dreams as possibly like a science or like a spiritual uh, ambiguous talent that you could like tap into or a spiritual energy you could tap into. Um, that you could like just get good at if you trained at. Um, but Joseph clarified that it, it, that was not the case, that it was God who interpreted dreams. And then he could, he would use uh, believers um, to, you know, with, give them that ability and then reveal that information to them. Verse 25, and Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one and the same. The seven thin and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven thin ears scorched by the east wind will be seven years of famine. It is as I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Behold, seven years of great abundance are coming in all the land of Egypt. And after them, seven years of famine will come. And all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. And the famine will ravage the land. So the abundance will be unknown in the land because of that subsequent famine. For it will be very severe. Now, as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is confirmed by God and God will quickly bring it about. So now let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise and appoint him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers in charge of the land. And let him take a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt as a tax in the seven years of abundance. Then have them collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority. 
and have them guard it. Let the food be used as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine, which will occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land will not perish during the famine. Now the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his servants. So both dreams predicted that there would be seven plentiful years followed by seven years of famine. So Joseph clarified that because the dream came in like a doubles or a double type format, that it came from God and that it was going to occur soon. This also shows that God is sovereign over the earth and and the events that occur on earth. And after interpreting the dreams, Joseph advised Pharaoh to find a wise man to store 20% of the grain during the, during the plentiful years and oversee the saving of the food uh, during the, 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 the years of plenty in order to distribute uh, during the years of famine. And so as we read throughout history, famines were somewhat a common occurrence in the ancient world. And droughts still happen today. Um, but the food industry is different along with we have globalization, we have uh, international commerce so that if one part uh, of the world experiences drought or things that would contribute to famine, um, there are resources and um, yeah, there are resources today that we have available so um, this, that this, don't put us in dire situations. But yeah, this to me. If I recall correctly, this was a famine throughout the entire world. And so I think um, even under globalization, wouldn't would it not also it's even back then, I don't I don't think there would have been an opportunity, even if the world will have been globalized for things to be transported. Or what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I guess I I, I see this as a famine of a big region. Right, because the region that we're looking at, I mean, the regions that are involved are you have the land of Canaan, and, and then you have um, Egypt, with his, which is Northeast Africa, right? So, like, I mean, we're talking about two different places that are hundreds of miles apart that, that both experience this famine, right? But what about on the other side of the world, right? Where, I mean, we have areas that, that they're geography just doesn't change i mean when i say doesn't change like i don't i mean do 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 tropical areas go through droughts the same way that a desert area like egypt goes through a drought so i i think that this famine was definitely widespread was it completely global i mean the bible doesn't say because the, the scope the focus was only on Canaan and Egypt, right? We know that both of them were experiencing it. So in verse, not to jump too far ahead though, but how would you interpret verse 56 and verse 57 at the end of the chapter? I mean, I guess here's my thoughts on this. Listen, this was something that the reason why I'm pointing this out is because this is something that I was thinking myself. Okay. Okay. I agree. There's multiple routes you can go on. I go here. I think one of the options would be to say, like you said, the entire you know, it says here in our interpretation of the original text, right? We're using the NASB here that verse 56, when the famine was spread over the entire face of the earth. And so whenever I hear that, you know, my first thought is really, was this over the entire face of the earth or perhaps maybe the entire face of the known earth? You know, where where maybe the the people in that area actually knew that it was in that area. Um, point is, I'm not saying I'm not trying to make a really big deal about this, you know, but I do think that this is. I mean, whenever it, I read, it's listen, relevant. Whenever I read the entire face of the earth, right, that particular phrase, you know, I was just wondering, like, hey, I wonder if that was the entire, entire world, okay? Um, so I, I think that's great. I think because here's the thing, I, I, I want to be consistent in my interpretations, and I think when we go back to, I believe it's Genesis uh, 7, uh, was it Genesis 7 or 8, somewhere along there where it says that God flooded, you know, the waters covered the entire face of the earth, right? 
And so that same language is used. And so in order to make sure I'm consistent, what I'm saying is that it's very possible that a famine, God did have a famine uh, impact the entire world. So that's possible. Totally. What, what I'm saying is that I don't know if I think there are certain parts of the world that were probably hurt worse than other parts of the world, though. And I think that there were certain parts of the world who probably did not travel to Egypt to buy grain. Because when I going back to the, the geography here, you know, when you think of Egypt and uh, the Canaan area, there is a lot of desert. Right. So like if a desert area goes through a drought, that's huge. Right. And so just to the geography, I know. Um, so like when when New Mexico goes through a drought, it is brutal, right? Like the ranchers in New Mexico, it is so brutal. When Texas goes through a drought, um, it's not the same thing. It's, it's really hard as well. But Mexico, New Mexico experiencing a drought and Texas experiencing a drought are different things because New Mexico has way less water anyway to, to start with. And so, yeah, so going back, I'm sorry, um, looking at the wording here, I do believe that this was probably a famine that impacted the entire world. I question, though, the degree. So there are tropical areas in Latin America that I'm familiar with, and it's hard to believe that a drought just completely turned those lush tropical areas into deserts, right? I think it hurt them but I don't think it destroyed them. And so, uh, you know, the, the Incans or whoever would have been around there, I don't believe they traveled to Egypt to buy grain. I think that some of them probably starved, uh, but there was enough food that not everybody starved. That's my speculation. And I mean, yeah. Um, I know that like in Texas, there was uh, like a year of, of I mean, a t Texas experienced a couple years ago, a time of drought where like, for example, um, that, that popular lake in Austin, uh, Lake, lake Travis, you could see the water line, how significantly it had dropped. And so, yeah, it, uh, this drought or famines hurt everybody, but Lake Travis did not disappear. And so that's why I think that like, but like if you're talking about people in West Texas who are already dealing with desert, that, that a, a drought is killer. Right. But you're talking about Austin, it's very difficult, but there's still water yeah. available. To clarify my point, uh, you're right. I believe it is over the entire face of the earth. I, I'm not convinced that it was as severe as, as it was in Egypt and Canaan. Right. And the other thing that comes up in this is, you know, how far people really traveled at this point, you know, are there people in some of these remote locations? There's probably some way we could look into that, right? We'd probably look at cave drawings or artifacts or whatever else. I just have no idea. Uh, that's kind of outside the scope of what we're trying to do today. <laughs> but uh, for those of y'all who know, right, maybe that would be a, Good thing to throw in the comments section. Um, probably make us all look like yeah, a If you're of... a young earth Christian historian. Yeah, because if you're old earth and then, then your timeline's so messed up that it wouldn't help. So anyway. <laughs> uh... Actually, if, you, if you're old earth, then you don't take the, um, if you're consistent, then you don't take the worldwide flood to be worldwide anyway so you couldn't use that hermeneutic here either so stay consistent and uh uh don't say stuff like forty thousand years ago okay oh man love it yeah we we love our old and our young earthers here at two bros uh both of you guys. yeah yeah we're, we're just trying to help you old earthers along yeah yeah thank you well, um, glad we uh, got that one figured out, nailed down. Um, so 
What I also think is interesting is in verse 37, we see what, what does Pharaoh do here? Now the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all of his servants. And so Pharaoh is recognizing and trusting this interpretation by God through Joseph. That is very fascinating. Um, I have actually uh, read that during this time, some people thought that Pharaoh was some type of divine being as well. And so by trusting this interpretation by God through Pharaoh, and Joseph has made it perfectly clear that this is from God, Pharaoh is kind of almost putting himself in this um, trusting role of God, right? He's trusting God. And ultimately, I think we see um, God blessing that move. You know, <laughs> that's a good move that Pharaoh has. So um, props to Pharaoh in this situation, you know, in this one situation. I give him props. It's a good idea. Anytime you submit to what God has in your life, that's definitely a good move. Yeah, I'd like to further comment on that. You made, you made a really good point. So, um, yeah, for that was my understanding, too, that Pharaoh was seen as kind of a divine being. And therefore, Pharaoh, as being a divine being, should have been able to interpret these dreams himself because he was receiving it from, you know, ultimate divine beings. And so um, this definitely would have been humbling uh, for him to because theoretically he should because he's somewhat divine himself or whatever, he shouldn't have to um, rely on the soothsayers or priest to that degree, right? Obviously they employed them, um, but they may have been used for other things, not, not to help Pharaoh interpret what the, the, with the message that the gods were sending him. So yeah, yeah, good call. Cool. Verse 38. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom there is a divine spirit? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has informed you of all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you are. You shall be in charge of my house and all my people shall be obedient to you. Only regarding the throne will I be greater than you. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, see, I have placed you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it in Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put the gold necklace around his neck. And he had him ride in his second chariot and they proclaimed ahead of him, bow the knee. And he placed him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh named Joseph Zaphoneth Peneah, and he gave him Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Okay. This is a big moment, everybody. This is the moment. Um, first off, we see Pharaoh as mentioned previously, putting his full faith in this interpretation by God through Joseph. I mean, he goes head first in this. And not only that, he follows the action plan that Joseph provides as what to do next now that we have these, we know the interpretation of these dreams. Joseph provides an action plan in the previous verses. And so... This is it. This is the culmination, right? Joseph is growing up with his family and he's favored by his father. Joseph has these dreams in which he ultimately will one day have his brothers and his father and his family bow down to him. He's given the multicolored tunic. His brothers end up hating him for this, for these dreams and for his favoritism by his father. And they end up selling him into slavery. Joseph spends years as a slave under Potiphar, ultimately gets accused of rape by Potiphar's wife. He's thrown into jail, 
based upon those false accusations, spends years in jail, and finally Joseph has this moment where he's he's not in these these moments of affliction. Finally, his life doesn't suck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know this is you know what I was thinking during this entire journey that we have here, because as we know in these verses, really quickly, right? Pharaoh says, Joseph, you're going to be the guy who ultimately enacts this plan. You're going to be my number two guy. You're going to have everything, you know. And being the number two guy in Egypt was pretty much being the number two guy on the entire planet. Okay. I mean, Egypt was the, that was the spot, you know, that was a big time um, civilization. So uh, that was a really, really powerful position that he was in. And you know what I was thinking to myself? I was thinking just that. I was thinking, finally, God has Joseph, and listen to this, right where God wants him. And when I, as soon as I thought that, I was like, you know what? That's not right. You know what I mean? God had Joseph right where he wanted Joseph all along. You know, it wasn't just this final culminating moment, you know, in which finally Joseph gets to be in the spot where God had him planned all the way along. It, it, God had Joseph where he wanted him all along the way too, you know? And so I just, this, this hits home with me in particular because there's been times in my life where I was just striving, striving to get to this one moment in life and not really recognizing that the moment that I'm in right now is, is exactly where I, I if you're putting God first in your life is exactly where you need to be, right? Or where, where God wants you, where God has planned for you. So um, I would just, you know, caution anybody who's just waiting and waiting and, and it's not satisfied until they reach this one moment. Maybe we should enjoy and respect and appreciate the moment God has us in right now, knowing that God, that's where God has us, such that maybe God will have a, a different place for us in the future but he might not so we need to enjoy the mo the place where we're at yeah good thoughts um so pharaoh here in verse 38 described joseph as having a divine spirit which i mean from our view from a biblical worldview I mean, like that that's referencing right the, which no okay so pharaoh described joseph as having a divine spirit which could mean the spirit of god which theologically is true in the sense of how the Holy Spirit works, uh, but probably not what Pharaoh meant, um, because Pharaoh believed in, in multiple gods, and he believed in false gods. And so, But interestingly enough, uh, we see that Joseph was 30 years old at this point in the story, which puts, puts us 13 years into this narrative, because I believe that Joseph was 17 uh, when this began. Um, and we first pick up when he was a youth and going to check on his brothers. And so, um, but Pharaoh recognized that Joseph was wise and a man of God and thought it would be best and thought he would be the best person to manage uh, this food effort. So Pharaoh gave Joseph a signet ring, which could be used for signing official government documents and, and other uh, important things. And so um, at this point, Joseph became second in command under Egypt, which which Henry talked about. And um, you know, one of the one of the principles here I also see is sometimes five steps back can move you ten steps forward. And on reference to how Joseph was previously a servant, captain of the guard, and then unfairly lost that position to be put in prison, and then only later he became second in command of the whole kingdom. Um, so as part of this new role, though, Pharaoh gave Joseph multiple gifts, clothes, jewelry, chariot. Uh, people had to pay respect to him, also an Egyptian name, and then an Egyptian wife. And so his wife was from a family of priests who worshipped false gods. And so um, this city on uh, was a city also, it was also known as Hel Heliopolis. Um, which was known as the chief city of the sun god Ra, uh, and it was actually located just 19 miles north of, of ancient Memphis. And so that's interesting that, um, you know, he's, he's a, a spiritual guy in the true sense. 
and his wife is spiritual in the negative sense. Um, so obviously when we, we read this, it, it's, I would assume and hope he, he shared, uh, his, you know, the, the knowledge of the true God with his wife. We see, um, later on, as we continue the people who did end up serving, uh, Joseph, it, it appears that he shared definitely the knowledge of, of Yahweh with them. And so, um, that's interesting though, that he ended up, you know, he married a, a, a priestess of, of false gods. Definitely interesting. Um, you know, um, especially with the history in his family, right? They were commanded to not, if I recall correctly, Justin, you correct me if I'm wrong, but there was a, there was a push from within the family not to marry Canaanite. Women. Right. Right. Now this lady is not Canaanite. Okay. Right. Also, this is a different situation too. in the fact that like, like Pharaoh is like, Hey, here's your new wife. Right. And so God seems to have allowed that union to take place. We know that his wife did not turn Joseph away from the one true God of the Bible, according to, according to the scripture that we have. And we also uh, know that Joseph ultimately uh, taught his sons, you know, of the one true God of the Bible. So it's, not a stretch of the imagination that his wife perhaps um, came to be a worshiper of the, of the one true God of the Bible as well. We don't know for certain though. There's no way of saying one thing we do know is God allowed this and uh, the Egyptian name that he was given probably means that God, that the God speaks and lives based upon some of the commentaries that I read. So another uh, interesting deal here. Okay, verse 46. Now Joseph was 30 years old when he stood in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven years of plenty, the land produced abundantly. So he collected all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities. He put in every city, the food from its own surrounding fields. Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea until he stopped measuring it for it was beyond measure. So, um, we see with Joseph's new role, he traveled throughout Egypt. Um, so the dream that uh, God had given Pharaoh had now become true. So Joseph started uh, saving the food uh, just like he had suggested to Pharaoh. Really quickly, Joseph basically enacts the plan that they originally come up with. And apparently he's doing a really great job. And, you know, we know that from Joseph's success as a slave under Potiphar and his success in the jail, ultimately God was with Joseph. And so I, I know that the success that Joseph ultimately had here was from God. And we know that he was successful because in verse 49, it says Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he stopped measuring it because it was beyond measure. This isn't a little bit of grain. This is a lot of grain here. So we're still in the seven years of abundance. So the dreams that God had given Pharaoh had now become true in the sense of the years of the seven years of abundance had started. Justin, verse 50. Okay. Verse 50. Okay. Now, before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph from Aseneth, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore to him. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God had made me forget all my trouble and all of my father's household. And he named the second son Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So we're still in the time period before the famine. Okay, so we're still in the years of abundance. Joseph has a couple sons and he ultimately names them with God as an emphasis in their names. 
though even in the names of his kids, he's ultimately recognizing God. This man was a man of God, is the way I see it. I think it's perfectly clear. You know, it's it's interesting because he recognizes God. In the he names his two firstborn sons with a name that references God and his challenges. You know, in both of those names, that is that's tough. That is tough. I. Because up really, I mean, for most of his life, you know, I guess, you know, we don't know exactly when he had these kids, right? He gets a wife pretty quickly before this, right when the, the right when the seven years of plentiful are about to start, he seems to get a wife. How quickly he had these kids, it's hard to say, but um, well, it's impossible to say because we just don't know. We know it's before the seven years of famine started, but... I just imagine as somebody who has gone through age around 17 to age 30, um, and it might be exactly 17. Um, that's a long time. That's 13 years. And he's just reflecting. I see this as a moment where he's reflecting back on his life. And he's like, man, I really, <laughs> this was tough. This is a tough road, you know? Um, but he recognizes his his ability to get out of these um, these moments through God. Wish I could say that more eloquently. Uh, sorry for everybody who didn't understand what I was saying. Understand the words that came out of my mouth. Yeah, so Joseph, as we saw in this section uh, from verses 50 to 52, he gave his sons uh, Hebrew names instead of Egyptian names, which showing that he preserved um, his Hebrew culture and his the moral standards he got from, from the impact that God had on his culture um, continued to bring that in, in his family. Right. That's another great point. I absolutely love that because if you think about it, it's like he's, it's so easy to get too wrapped up into the, whatever culture that you find yourself, but he's bringing God and his roots within his family kind of within this culture. He's not leaving that behind. He's not getting completely consumed. I think it's really easy for a lot of us to be consumed by what's okay at the time in the culture. Verse 53, when the seven years of plenty, which had taken place in the land of Egypt, came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said, then there was famine in all the lands, but in all the lands of Egypt, there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt suffered famine, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, you shall do. When the famine was spread over the entire face of the earth, then Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians. And the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Then the people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the earth. Yeah, so this is, we finally see kind of every single thing that Joseph interpreted through God by God, through Joseph, all the interpretations now are basically complete. You know, here's the start of the, the seven years of famine. It gets really bad. People, most people probably weren't expecting this, right? How many people are expecting seven full years of famine? That's a really big deal. And a lot of people, you know, didn't have seven years. I mean, who has seven years of produce like picked backed up you know what i mean who has seven years of savings who could live off of their savings for seven years right that's a really big i mean that would that would wipe out everybody you know i don't know who that wouldn't wipe out only the most elite wealthy people would that potentially not completely wipe out so uh this is a very desperate situation okay and food becomes in these moments the most valuable thing. And as you see, 
Joseph, through his servitude and his humbleness and his um, placing God first in his life, he got to be part of helping who knows how many people through all this situation, right? If Joseph hadn't interpreted that dream, yes, could God have done this through another person? Sure, okay. Is God's will going to happen regardless? Sure, but Joseph got to be a part of that. How cool is that? Joseph got to be a part of helping all these people. These people would have been starving, starved to death. Who knows how many people? I mean, Egypt would have been the exact same situation as everyone else. And as we see here, Egypt was able to not only help the Egyptians, but a lot of other people outside of Egypt. So I just think that's really cool that Joseph got to be part of that. And he only got to be part of that because he was always putting God first in his life. I'm not saying he was perfect, okay? I'm not saying he never made a mistake. He absolutely made mistakes along the way. There's no question about it. But the overlying theme in his life is putting God first in his life. And he got to be a part of something absolutely incredible. Saved so many people. I couldn't be more stoked for, um, for Joseph. Closing thoughts, Justin. Yes. Um, so one of the verses that, that I thought of during, while I was reading this section is Luke 16, 10, uh, when Jesus said that he who can be trusted with little can be trusted with much. Um, as we saw how Joseph was face faithful with the little things and undesirable circumstances, which proved that God could trust him with bigger things like being second in command in Egypt. And so one of the things that, uh, as we've highlighted through this, this chapter is that all through it, God, um, Joseph gave God the credit instead of taking credit for himself. And so do people recognize us as, as godly people and, and how we give God the, the credit in our lives? Um, and Joseph was, was proven faithful uh, during the times of desperation. And so God elevated him uh, into more exciting circumstances in order to serve him. Um, but as we see, God wants us to be a good steward of our resources, uh, no matter where we're at and, and what our situation. I think I've talked to people out there who be like, man, you know, if God made me rich, I'd be, I'd be really generous. And it's like, well, you can be generous now. Right. Like you can you can be a good steward of your resources now. Um, and, and so that's what Joseph was. Joseph was was faithful with all the situations. Um, and he went through a lot of undesirable situations, but he was faithful to God and all those circumstances. And so God, he proved to God that he could be trusted in being put into the position that God put him as second in command in Egypt. Absolutely. My closing thoughts are just really a, a recommendation from what we learned about Joseph. Number one, put God first in your life. Joseph over and over and over did this. Number two, buckle up. There's going to be some challenging times. We are certain of that. Okay. We've had challenging times. Everyone here who's alive, okay, has had challenging times likely will come across more challenging times even in those challenging times let's just be stoked to serve god even in the non-challenging times but maybe times that we consider boring okay or maybe things that don't seem thrilling let's get stoked about those things right let's get ready i mean can you imagine what joseph maybe thought he was the head guy in a jail amongst a bunch of prisoners right let's get stoked man let's get stoked like joseph ultimately um did in serving god no matter what situation you is in working really really hard let's find that thrilling and exciting because god will ultimately use that i think many times whenever we're bored or we do other things we are not realizing how much of an impact little things can have on the entire world, right? I think very little things can have humongous, humongous impacts. 
So let's not let's not minimize those things. Let's recognize that every single day we should be going hard in the paint, serving God. We should be stoked about it because it is thrilling. Because what ultimately can result, and that's kind of my third point here, is what? how did it result for Joseph? He ended up having a huge impact on so many, so many people. And would we have all known, could he have known how big of an impact he was going to have later on at the beginning? No. He couldn't. He he didn't. He couldn't have known that. Um, and so, I guess he did have a couple of dreams, right? In which you know that did seem to prophesy that he was going to be in this position. But he probably didn't know how that was going to play out, and whether he had unwavering faith that that was going to happen or not is also to be questioned. But I would just say this: let's let's consider the amount of people we can ultimately impact by serving God every single day. Let's, we're not, this isn't a, a competition on the number of people, but just serve the people around you in the situations you can. If you try and help and serve, serve God as much as you can and help as many people as possible, I think you're going to have a huge impact on the planet like Joseph. And you don't need to be second in command to Egypt to do this. Okay. You don't need to do that. You don't need to be there. You can absolutely do that with wherever you are right now. Okay. And then plan for the long term. If you're younger, just go hard in the pay every single day. And then by the time you're 80, who knows what God will ultimately use throughout through 50 years of service. When time you're 80, if you ultimately aren't doing this, I think you're to look back at your life and be like, man, it's kind of wasted. You know, instead of serving God, I was too busy playing video games all the time. Right. How many people are you helping playing video games? You can help people playing video games, but how many people do <laughs> help people playing video games? Or whatever it is, you know what I mean? Trying to make as much money as possible. If you're someone that, that has that uh, focus. Or you're trying to get as cool or as funny or as popular at school as possible. If you're going to spend all this time doing that, what is that ultimately going to do? Who cares if people think you're funny? Who cares if people think you're cool at the end of the day? People are fickle, you know? They might not think you're... Let's spend our time serving God. That is that is just everlasting, long-standing never going to regret those types of decisions because it'll have such a humongous impact for eternity. Anyways, those are my closing thoughts. Boom. There it is, baby. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Mm. Here at Two Bros, we don't endorse putting anything in yeah, your pipes. No. As, as a metaphorical. It's a, it's a saying. It's a saying. That's right. It's fine. Yeah. Right. How do you like them apples? There we go. I like that. We're not talking about apples. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, thank you so much for joining us. Chapter 41. This was an epic one. Super stoked that we all get to be here today and learn about Joseph. We will see you next time. Chapter 42. Have a super awesome and blessed day. Later. See us.